You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. Often the last people to see things the way they truly are are those closest to it. People who have no emotional stake in answering the question have a unique advantage over those with a stake. This is akin to the beaten wife syndrome. Everyone outside of the relationship can see that the wife should leave her husband, who's abusive, but it takes time before the wife makes such a decision. For her, it's much harder to see. I was thinking about this over the past week as I was reading a book by Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel. In his book, which is called Only the Paranoid Survive, he talks about when he had to completely change Intel's business model. Within the firm, the reluctance to change was formidable. This was a large bureaucratic organization, after all. And yet, they were getting crushed in the semiconductor business. If you're not aware of the story, Intel, under Andy's leadership, made a very dramatic shift and went whole hog into the memory business, where they could truly differentiate themselves and build a formidable competitive position. I've personally had a few events in my life where what has worked and provided goes away, either by choice or by some other means. When I've either been diligent enough and willing to look for and identify risk rather than hope for or indeed seek out validation that those risks don't exist or that they're not significantly meaningful, it's never easy to do it as it involves a lot of discomfort. Another way to look at this is when on a train, you can't see how fast it's going. As a bystander watching a train, you can see that there's obvious speed. When you're sitting on the train, you don't have the same perception of speed. What does this have to do with investing? Well, everything really. It's human nature for us to expect the existing to remain. And furthermore, if we extrapolate this into the future, it provides us psychologically with certainty. Whether that certainty is justified or not is what is important. This is how markets experience disruption and asymmetric moves. The incumbent situation, the status quo if you will, is extrapolated into the future and the longer it persists, the greater the validation that it will persist. Comfort lies in the known. Human beings tend towards linear thinking as a result, extrapolating those recent events into the distant future. Most of the time this works but some of the time it doesn't, and when it doesn't, it often really doesn't. This is, of course, how we have find ourselves with bubbles, how bubbles build, and when they burst, they often do so in a spectacular fashion. During my professional career, I've seen this take place repeatedly. While I've been fortunate enough to sidestep getting wiped out by bursting bubbles, sometimes I've actually I've not participated in the downside of them. I've had to shift capital and business interests several times. More recently, I've just written about that in a blog post entitled, The Only Constant is Change. So I'm very familiar with it. If I look at the markets today, investors and policymakers are deluding themselves into thinking that we're going to return to some pre-financial crisis equilibrium. Expectations for economic growth are optimistic at best. The stock market, which is to say, equities market, investors are paying high prices for companies with outlooks that just simply aren't justifiable by most any metric. A significant factor in this puzzle are those policy decisions. Today's low interest rates are being factored into this equation. 
once again extrapolated out into eternity. As the cost of capital has approached and indeed dropped below zero, the difference between cash and credit seems inconsequential. It's no surprise then that we see investors treating bonds in much the same way as we see cash being treated. That is to say, not particularly risky. Could it be that both are risky? The next crisis we know is being built due to these low rates. But let's go back to the extrapolation of the status quo. Consumer demand, as I wrote in last week's World Out of Whack, has been strong as the demographic pig moves through the python. I think it was Stephanie Pompoy for the founder of Macro Mavens who stated this very eloquently. She said something along the lines or to the effect that the spendthrift US consumer has largely supported the era of globalization as economies have become reliant on the US consumer. I think that's all true. There's certainly the world that's certainly the world that we've experienced, but if you look around the world today, it's increasingly not the case. So, if we look at the last few years of economic growth, you find that the growth has been disappointing. Retail sales are very disappointing. While this has been the case, there is always an excuse being made by economists and analysts to explain away what is considered to be a temporary nature, or something of temporary nature. This is due to the embedded expectation that a return to some sort of normal is just around the corner. Even Brexit was you know, blamed for some of the disappointing numbers that we're seeing. And yes, Brexit increased volatility and highlighted some of the major issues which Europe faces. But there's a structural shift that's being blamed on extraneous events. Um, and I think that these events would take place regardless. As interest rates have collapsed, the savings rate has more than doubled. Now aside from Japan, this has never taken place before, at least not to my knowledge. When interest rates fall, the savings rate declines as market participants take advantage of the lower cost of capital in order to either spend or invest in businesses. Literally every Wall Street economist that I can think of seems to be willfully ignoring this structural shift. Again, as mentioned in the world out of whack on the demographics, these are changing. When I'm in my 50s or 60s, I too am likely to save more. I almost certainly won't be spending as much. Kids will be out of the house, consumption will naturally decline. It's just simple and that's taking place. Think about this for a minute. If we have over $12 trillion in global debt that is now negative yielding territory, then clearly the world economy is not as healthy as the stock market is suggesting. And if the stock market is meant to reflect the global economy, then something's clearly very wrong. If I was to sum up the current negative bond yield environment, it is that investors are buying so-called safety on the premise that central banks will continue to monetize an economically moribund market. This is true in Europe, it's true in Japan, and it's true in the US. That's very risky for the very fact that those negative bond yields are not due to true risk being priced. I've discussed how investors have been and you know, continue to be pushed further down the risk curve in a hunt for returns. I fear they're looking in all the wrong places. Emerging market bonds, for example, are being bid up. I've just been looking at some of the numbers, and in the last two months alone, investors have poured $1.2 billion into emerging market bonds and another $2.8 billion into junk bonds. All of this at the lowest yields in the last two decades. Sure, on a relative basis, the argument appears to make sense, but this is no different than buying real estate outside of the central areas at the tail end of a boom. Yes, it's cheaper. Yes, the yields are better. 
But no, the quality isn't. Valuing it based on comparisons, and those comparisons being made against a benchmark that is so distorted by central bank policy, is a recipe for disaster. Consider this. The average yield on emerging market bonds is 3.8%. 3.8%? Really? The average yield on junk bonds is 55 The market seems to have collectively lost its recall of how risky these investments tend to be. As I've written about at length when first identifying the breakout in the dollar index, we're not out of a dollar bull market just yet. I tend to think that we're probably about halfway through it, though I'm open to being wrong on this, and I'll certainly adjust accordingly if the market tells me so. If, on the other hand, I'm right about that, and we have more dollar strength ahead of us, then these emerging market bonds funds you know, paying pitiful 3.8% yield stand to get vaporized as the underlying currencies decline. So, coming back to it, we saw with Brexit how a market can react when taken by surprise. What surprise could we experience that could disrupt both the stock and the bond markets right now? I'd say it's an unexpected rise of inflation. It is one thing that nobody seems to be considering at all. Given that central banks are owning increasingly large portions of the sovereign bond markets, it's probably fair to say that the risk of default is increasingly mitigated as they own and control more and more of this market. Right now, the sovereign bond markets in Japan, Europe and the US have one owner, which is the largest owner, and that is the central banks themselves. So when you owe it to yourself, presumably you can't default. I'd ask this though, what is a sovereign bond? Really, it's an IOU on the currency with a time limit. Now, what if the currency itself comes into question due to the loss of faith in central banks' ability to manage this process? Does it matter what bonds are really trading at? Does the retail investor care or whether or not he owns a government bond? Not if he's afraid of the currency. Again, if the central banks have pushed most investors out of that market, then what's left is the currency. Central banks can maintain the credibility of a currency, but in order to do so, would need to let the market price the issuance of bonds, or the cost of holding that currency for that set period of time. They may be able to manipulate the cost of capital, but they cannot do so while at the same time maintaining the credibility of the currency. We're well down the road of them controlling the bond market, and so it seems reasonable to me that the risks lie in the currency markets. That is, I think, where we need to be paying attention. Traditional portfolio theory involving what is roughly a 60-40 split between equities and bonds runs, I think at this point in time, and a really oversized risk in a market where equities are at all-time high, and those equities are at all-time highs at the end of a demographic boom. And remember that demographic boom translates into a weakening demand. Weakening demand translates into weakening corporate profits, and weakening corporate profits are basically earnings on it by you know if we purely look at PE ratios then then the price is simply not justified according to forward-looking earnings and where bonds are in the largest bubble the world's ever seen also and this is important I think all assets are priced off of a benchmark everything is relative right so this is how emerging market debt trades at that 3.8 percent I mentioned not because it's suddenly miraculously become less risky but because investors are pricing it against a benchmark. Well, what happens when the benchmark is complete, completely manipulated? 
remember coming back to Andy Grove of Intel, who managed to see what was coming for Intel and to make the very hard decisions go against the comfort into what was considered risky territory. It was the one thing that allowed Intel's to survive. Well, I'd suggest that today we've got a market where the vast majority of participants quite simply don't want to see the risks. Too many of them are benefiting from the status quo. Nobody wants to see upheaval in the marketplace, and so only a few, a fair few are doing what Andy Grove did, stepping off the train and viewing it as a commuter on the platform to see how fast it's really going. The frustration that comes from realizing that what has worked for so long in the past needs to be let go of is coupled with trying to deal with a problem so big that we don't know how to deal with it when we want to run from that problem rather than deal with the reality. All of this tends to be painful. As investors, it's our duty to first consider the rule that we don't want to lose money. Avoiding what is in front of us as overpriced assets is a first step to ensuring we don't get wiped out. Remember, change is a constant. We live in a dynamic world, not a linear one, and it's time to face that reality and not allow ourselves to be potentially crushed by it. So when a new reality faces you, acknowledge it, tackle it head on. Short-term pain is better than long-term pain. Increasingly, we have a situation where assets are being priced and the risks that are inherent in that pricing are not being fully realized by investors. Make sure you understand what risks are being taken. Be careful when valuing things on a relative basis and try and step out of the trees to see the forest. Until next time, all the best. Thanks very much for tuning in. To receive more great subscriber-only information, go to capitalistexploits.at.